All right. We're talking about baptism this evening. I would love it if you could join me in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 6. And if you didn't get one of these nifty little communion packs when you came in and you're a follower of Jesus that would like to observe communion, you can grab one here at the table in front of you. I'm so glad to be here and to be God's people together. As you're turning turning or swiping to Romans chapter 6, I want to tell you about a time years ago that I spent with a Catholic priest. I had reached out to a Catholic priest here in Richardson, just down Jupiter, at a large Catholic parish called St. Joseph. St. Joseph is where my grandparents are very much involved, and so they put me in contact with this guy because I needed help. I needed to understand what was happening when I went to worship or to the Mass with my Catholic family. I met with this priest to say, can you give me the real brass tacks of what is happening in this worship service together? And so we met, and he said, before we can even go into the sanctuary, we need to start outside the building. I mean, this guy who was working on a PhD in liturgy, have you heard this word liturgy? Liturgy is a Greek word that roughly translates to the work of the people or service. So we say liturgical churches are like Catholic or Episcopal or Anglican with the robes and it's more um, symbolic and it's a liturgical form, this service, this work. And he said, I got to run you through the whole thing. And so of all the time and of all the information, of all the symbolism around the building, of what they're doing, he even said, we don't walk, we process. I mean, this was serious. But the thing that struck me the most in our tour, as he was explaining their liturgy, explaining their worship, was the baptismal font. I'm going to show you a picture that was taken by my grandfather who belongs to that parish. And your eyes are not deceiving you. That is a reflection on the still surface of the water. If I were to ask you in this church building, where's the baptistry? Those of you might say, just peeking out behind that sign. It's elevated. It's up. You've seen baptisms in this building, many of you. But can you tell in that picture where the baptismal font is in the Catholic church? It's not up in the front of the stage. It's actually at the entrance of the pews. So when I tell you that we started outside and we processed in, we stopped at this baptismal font And he said, it's here because every time a Catholic walks into the Mass, they dip their finger into the baptismal water and they make the sign of the cross. And only then do they step forward into the pew area and take their seat amongst the worshiping community. I was like, wait a minute. 
does this mean what I think it means? He goes, yeah. It's a weekly reminder that you only take your place within the worshiping community through the waters of baptism. And I said, this is rocking my world. I said, it's rocking my world, man. Like, they do this every Mass? He goes, yeah. He says, sometimes we have it set over here. It's the same water. It's blessed as this. He goes, but every time they do this. I said, this is powerful. I said, do they realize what they're doing? He goes, no. I was like, you should tell them. You should say this every week. But then I got to thinking, well, do we know what we're talking about? Do we know what we're doing? Our last baptism was earlier this year. It's been a minute. That's why I thought tonight we would talk about baptism. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to be talking about communion. We do communion every week. Do we know why and what is happening in that space? Our big idea for this week and next week is this. Baptism and communion are Christian physical practices of spiritual realities. They are the disciples' family traditions. We take what is tangible and finite, like water on our finger and making the sign on our bodies to be marked, or we taste the bread and juice. We take what is tangible and finite to help us connect to what is spiritual and infinite. I need to say at the front, one of the ways in which we differ with our Catholic brothers and sisters is that we believe that God does the work that water and wine and bread cannot. That's not to say that we denigrate or say that they don't matter. They very much do. Insofar as they help us connect to the story and the good news that we are what we sang about. Written in glory, we know the author of life. We are joined in the worshiping community because we've said yes to God and we're taking on the family traditions. They matter insofar as every week we taste again and take in the symbolic representation of our Savior that said, this is my body, this is my blood, and we take it into our body and it connects us to the Savior who suffered for the world and sends us out to bring good news to a broken and hurting people. It's the same way we put on graduation caps and gowns and there's something about the regalia, the tangibleness, the, the, the marking of time that says this is important, this matters, and it reminds us of what is so important. When I say the word family traditions, and you may have seen it, you'll see it again in the title slide. When I talk about baptism the family tradition I'm referencing is what I mentioned to our kids a moment ago. Baptism is the birthday party. I'll explain more and unpack why that is. But because that Catholic priest was on to something and it's such a beautiful symbol they have, it's the initiation rite into the family. 
But communion, as we'll talk next week and practice this evening, that's the family dinner. That's the intimate gathering where we come together in the midst of the craziness and the chaos. We sit down at the Lord's table and we breathe for a minute and we remember our Father and our brother Christ and the Spirit who is among us. We sit at the family table and we are grounded again in the family traditions that extend 2,000 plus years back and on into the kingdom come. It's what we sing about. It's what we can taste and touch. And it's where we'll be spending our time together this evening. Here's where we're headed. We're going to talk about the spiritual reality in Romans chapter 6, of which baptism is a tangible expression. Then we're going to spend a minute talking about how we do this, the physical practice of baptism. Then I'll close with two brief invitations for everybody who's been baptized and for those of you who haven't been baptized. That's where we're headed. Let's jump into Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 5. I would encourage you to spend time with the rest of that chapter later on. But for our purposes, we're going to get into Paul's rhetorical, powerful argument where he unpacks the spiritual reality of which baptism is a picture. Verse 1. What shall we say then? Should we just go on sinning so that grace may increase? (laughs) By no means. We're those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we also, we too, may live a new life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say, thanks be to God. I encourage you to read the rest of Romans chapter 6. When I was in seminary, we had to memorize a huge chunk of Romans chapter 6. That ain't a bad passage to memorize. But for our timing and purposes tonight, let me give you a summary of the rest of the argument that Paul unpacks. What he's effectively saying is this. The chains of sin, death, and evil have been broken in Christ. In Christ, we're forgiven, free, and filled with the Spirit of God. This is what he's saying. You've died to sin. Those chains are broken. You are set free, like my nifty little picture there on the side of the slide. And so the rhetorical questions then become, okay, so should you just keep running up your sin debt account because God is so gracious that he'll just pay that sucker off like a massive overdraft fee? No problem. Okay, that's a massive credit card, but all right, daddy loves you, sweetie. Here you go. Let's write it off. He says, that's foolish. That's a moot point. You're operating in a way and a status and a space 
That is no longer your life. It's almost as if to mix metaphors, when you're married to someone and that person is deceased, you're kind of free from that contract now. The rhetorical question also could go like this. Should we climb back under the shackles of sin and shame? That's why he so vehemently says, of course not. That's going backwards in your life. That's returning to a life that's null and void. The contract is broken. This is no longer you. When you go through the waters of baptism, you're united to the one who has freed you and forgiven you. That's your old person, your old way. He has made something beautiful out of dust. You are a new creation. You're all those things we just sang about, which is why Kelly led us in those songs. We're dead to sin. Listen, this is important, because you know this. You know it. We're dead to sin not in the way of, well, I've never sinned since I was, um, became a Christian and was baptized. That's foolish. We're not dead to sin in the way that you'll never be tempted again. That's foolish too. If you have a heartbeat and you're physically alive, you're still going to sin and you're still going to face temptation. So what does dead to sin really mean then? This is what Paul unpacks throughout the rest of chapter 6. But one way of saying it is like this. When sin whispers in our ear, we're right there in that bottom paragraph, we remember the voice who called us out of darkness and into light. That's not who you are. You're mine. That was then. This is now. And you're free to walk in step with the Spirit. Paul will say in Galatians 5, you should really look at that whole chapter later this evening, because he also unpacks the Jewish initiation, right? Not baptism, but circumcision. And he says, hey, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. Don't go back under the yoke of slavery or circumcision. No, the new initiation is to be united to Christ, to walk in step with him, so live accordingly. Don't go back to your old habits and ways. That was left in the water, dead and buried. I want you to imagine with me the famous story of the prodigal son. How many of you are familiar with the story of the prodigal son? Even those who aren't Christians who've never been to church, they've known the phrase or the story of the prodigal son. Younger son says, hey, dad, um, you're kind of lame. Give me all your money. I'm not going to wait till you die. And he goes and he blows it um, like many lottery winners. And God forbid the Powerball winner this week doesn't do. And he just spends it, is gone. And then finally he comes to his senses and he returns to the father's house. And the story, this is a story that Jesus tells, is one of a father who was shamed and rejected and abandoned, but he's looking to the horizon and he finds his son uh, erect and gross and uh, just ashamed, practicing his forgive me speech. And he comes back and the father runs to him, embraces him, and then what does he do next? What is, 
He runs toward the son. He embraces him. He welcomes him. Then what does the father do? Throws him a party. Throws him a party. Okay? Now, let's put on our imagination caps and let's step a year into the future of Jesus' parable. That prodigal son is back to work out in the fields and he starts to reminisce about his wild days sowing his wild oats. And he goes, should I go do that thing again? That was kind of fun. What do I think? What if that same prodigal son in that same moment starts to think, I mean, he's going to welcome me back. He did it before, and that was, man, that was wild. I stank like pigs. He hugged me. Man, what if? Do you think that son would really go off to the far country again? Could he entertain that thought? Probably. But would he set out on the road? Or was he so marked by a love that caught him off guard, that was reckless and relentless and prodigal, which is a word for spend happy. This father was a prodigal father because he spent and emptied the bank account to love and welcome and embrace that son again. I think that prodigal son would say, that's crazy talk. That's not who I am anymore. I'm not the prodigal son I'm the son of a loving father. How could I do that to him again? Does that mean that he won't entertain those whispers? Sure. But he remembers the voice that held him tightly to his chest and said, my son was dead, but now he is alive. I want to thank N.T. Wright for this imaginative exercise because it illustrates the force of Paul's argument, not through the parable of the prodigal son, but through the picture of baptism that reminds you of who you are. The order is important. When does the party happen? We ain't gonna have any party for a son who's returned without a son who's returned, right? The son returns home. Then the father throws a party. You have to be born before you have a birthday party. If baptism is the physical practice of the spiritual reality, here's what I mean by this. To be born into God's kingdom is to believe that Jesus is Lord and to give your life to follow him. Baptism is the birthday party that celebrates this new birth. This is on a different slide with the birthday candles. And it welcomes our new sister and our new brother into the kingdom family. It's actually on a different one, Rebecca. I'm sorry about that. Let's go back to this. Let's hang here. The reason why baptism as a physical practice illustrates that spiritual reality, that's the birthday party, is because the spiritual reality is that you are awakened to the one who's called you home. You're awakened to the voice of the one that says, give your life to God and his kingdom. 
And so the physical practice is that you're literally surrounded in water. Imagine that in the first church, they're in a river, like Jesus was in a river with John the Baptist. They're literally waist deep, immersed and surrounded in the water. I love this imagery because it's like you're just surrounded in Christ. That word in Romans 6, united with him, literally means joined with, grafted in. There's something that happens when you say, Jesus, you are Lord, I believe, and I'm going to follow you with my life. That you're grafted and joined to him. It's the Texan version of saying, Jesus, you're Lord, and I'm hitching my wagon to you. I'm going to take your yoke, and we're going to walk this field together, and I'm going to learn how to do your way. You're hitching your wagon, you're united, you're grafted, you're with him. Paul will say it, you're in Christ. Our lives become an expression and an extension of Christ Jesus himself. So the picture then, as we're waist deep in a baptistry here, or that coffin baptistry in the Catholic church, is to show that union in the burial that reminds us that we're united in death. And the death, Paul will say in Romans 6, the death he died, he died to sin once for all. The chains are broken, you're forgiven, you're freed, you're set loose. That is null and void and you leave all that stuff in the grave. Which is why, let's jump all the way back to that first picture with the reflection, why I love my grandfather's photo that he took. Because you see reflected in the waters of baptism, the cross. I think that architect knew what he or she was doing. You can't walk past that six foot long coffin and not see the reflection of the suffering Savior. That when we send all of our sins and the, the darkness and we poured it all out because God can't be forgiving, God can't be like this one who heals the sick and welcomes sinners, this can't be God. We don't want your kingdom. We don't want your way. We want our cycles of violence and division and legalism to continue. We'll figure it out, thank you very much, when we send all of our sins onto the cross of Christ and rejected the image of God incarnate, bleeding out. We said, this can't be who God is. This can't be what a king is. He turns the other cheek and forgives. He absorbs it. He recycles it. And when we see God for who God is revealed God's self on the cross enthroned and bleeding and broken and we look and we actually see that that's the blazing pivotal center of the universe. That's what love actually looks like. And when you behold the cross and you see it and you say, there's something about him. There's something about the bleeding one on the cross suffering and doing something about the darkness and brokenness in my own soul and in the world that I say, yes, I don't get it. It doesn't make sense, but there's something that compels me to say, yes, this is what the Lord must be. And I want to follow this suffering Savior.
And when you see that reflected and you're united with him, that's the spiritual reality. And then you talk amongst the community and you say, I want in on that. I said yes to that. I'm personally appropriating that. I'm in. The community says, yes. So let's celebrate it. Let's mark it. We're not going to put the cap and gown on and turn the thing. We're going to put a t-shirt and gym shorts on you and dunk you. We want you to remember and feel with the water dripping down. We want you to have a tangible, finite expression of an inward, infinite, eternal reality. And you're not just united in death. He's raised up to new life. And so when we baptize someone, we ask them a couple questions. The first is, do you turn from sin, evil, wickedness, and your old life and your old way? And like a wedding, but a wedding to the Lord, they say, I do. And then we say, cool. Are you going to turn to Jesus in trust and faith that he is who he says he is and that you can hitch your wagon to him and find that your life is infused with the life of heaven that starts now and goes on forever, even through death. Because when we bury you in your old life that you've turned from and we raise you to your new life that you're turning toward, it's a life that not even death can separate because Christ died to sin and lives to God in Romans 6. And if you're united with him there, guess what, my friend? You don't got to stay under. You're united with him in new life. So get on with it and let's walk accordingly. What's true of Christ now becomes true of you. The father said, this is my beloved son. Now he says, you're a beloved child. Jesus says, abide in me. Make your home in me. You're in me. The father loves me just like I've loved you. And if the Father loves me, guess what? He loves you. What's true of Christ is true of you. And when you look in the mirror and you say, man, I stink, you say, actually, I'm one in whom Christ dwells. Man, I'm never gonna get this right. I keep running back to the same chains. I keep picking them up and welding them back together. You say, no, I'm one in whom Christ dwells. And when sin whispers, Lord, help me have the courage to hear the voice of the one that calls me beloved and has given me power to walk in newness of life because you're not just free from the penalty of sin that's death, you're free from the power of sin and everything that Jesus has taught, he's allowed you the power to live. Not on your own strength, friend, because you're filled with the spirit of God. Galatians 5, you know your old way, but I say walk in step with the spirit. Because that fruit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control. We're united up out of the water in resurrection life also. A new allegiance, a new status, a new family. How then do we practice this in our church? Well, we baptize believers. Now, the Catholic Church, I was raised in an Episcopal church. I have a certificate from the Dallas Diocese that little baby Adam was sprinkled and baptized as an infant. And we say, that's wonderful. There's a symbol and a whole other sermon for how millions of Christians practice baptism in that way. In our church, we teach, we say, we practice. We don't baptize babies 
but there's no age requirement. What we baptize is those who have come to that point of seeing Jesus and responding to him in a personal faith. That's how we practice it. Because Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I couldn't speak when I was baptized, but I know that my parents' heart was to consecrate me and to raise me and disciple me. And that later on in faith, the Catholics, Anglicans, Episcopalians, Lutherans, others, would hope and trust that I would have been raised to a point where eventually around my teenage years, I would say, yeah, yeah, that took. I'm, I'm believing Jesus now. But my contention and the reason why we baptize believers is because we know the line forms to the left of people who were sprinkled as an infant and go off and live wild prodigal lives and never come back home. So the, the thing we see, our educated guests, as we look at the teaching and testimony of Scripture in the book of Acts, is that people first are born, they say yes, and they're born into the life of God's kingdom. All that stuff I just got excited talking about. Then comes the party. This is how we practice it here. This was a huge deal. And no one was really practicing this kind of believer's baptism for many hundreds of years. It was a practice that was lost after the earliest years of church. And they started making Christian nations. And so when you were born in Rome, you got a Roman citizenship. And then you were baptized as a baby. And then you got one of those nice little certificates like I got that says you are a citizen of the Roman church. And then in the Reformation, Martin Luther set out to separate, reform. And then when you were born in Germany, you would get a German passport. And then you get baptized into a Lutheran church. And you get a certificate that says, and here's your spiritual passport. And if you were in Switzerland or in other parts of Scandinavia, you might get the Presbyterian one, the Calvin one. And then out of this Reformation, the second wave comes and there's this group of people that starts to look at Acts and starts to think about the weirdness of a state church and how so many people are running around acting as if they never got any water on their foreheads, much less the rest of them. And so they say, is a piece of paper on earth what matters? Because even in places like Galatians 5, he talks about how the only thing that really counts is faith expressing itself through love. James will talk about, show me works and faith. In Romans chapter 3, you should look back. Paul makes a whole case. If water was what it was about, why did he spend five chapters saying everybody needs to put their faith in Jesus? By the way, you want to know what really set off the, Re the Reformation? Martin Luther reading Romans. Yet, there was still some more reforming to do. So these guys got together and they said, I don't know about this piece of paper. And so on one fateful night... A group of them were praying and got together and a grown-up person said, I'm going to be baptized. 
And they took this person out and they baptized this person as an adult in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And more and more of them started to do this. And they started to say things like, no one can be a Christian unless they follow Jesus in this life. I don't care about your piece of paper. We're going to follow the words of Jesus with nonviolence. We're going to follow the words of Jesus by sharing generously. We're going to follow the actual words of Jesus by trying to love our neighbor radically, recklessly, even and especially after the Catholic Church and the new Reformed churches called them a name and started to kill them. The name they called them was Anabaptists. The word Anabaptist starts with a prefix that's Greek for re the rebaptizers. Why are they rebaptizers? Because the Catholics and the Calvinists and the Lutherans, they said, bro, you already were baptized. We got a piece of paper to prove it. What are you guys doing walking around baptizing grown-up adults? What are you talking about? And because there was an archaic law on the books in Rome, because to break with this state church Baptism is treasonous. Catholics and reformers both agreed on this. Let's kill the rebaptizers because they're opting out of our system. They're opting out of our nation. So now fast forward 500 years and those that are the successors to the Anabaptists, people like the Mennonites and the Amish, no wonder they're a little bit separate and in their own communities because they were born out of bloodshed because they baptized adults. Today, we get to stand on shoulders of 500 plus years to go back and say, that's just a theological difference. But I love that coffin baptism with the Catholics, but, I'm a, but I didn't baptize my babies but we can agree to disagree. We see baptism for believers. The way we do it is, you may not remember, so I'll tell you, we start with a whole liturgy ourselves. And we ask that those who had a hand in the discipleship and the disciple making that were youth leaders and family members, that would you stand And we get to a point where we say, if you commit to continue to walk with this new believer, would you stand? And by the time that we're up there and go through the list, everybody's standing in this room. Then someone comes up and reads the story. You remember this? You remember this? Someone reads their story, their statement, their testimony. I saw Jesus. I said, you're Lord. I'm following him. Then... We have a word of encouragement. Keep on. Grow. Sin is still going to whisper. You're going to be out in the field as a prodigal and you want to run away again. But this is who you are now. Then we do those questions I mentioned earlier. And then we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit by immersion, which is that second point on the slide. Because we think that's the best picture of what we just read about in Romans 6. 
There's something tangible and finite in that space that helps connect us to that spiritual, infinite reality. The word baptism in Greek means to immerse. It's an educated guess, and there's, and there's good ways to say that, you know, there are good practices where even probably Jesus was standing waist deep and John may have like poured it over him. The mode I'm less um, finicky about, this is just our best way that we've decided to do it. I love the metaphorical practice. Finally, as I said, and you see on the slide, we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They're baptized into the family name just like when that person is born, they get the family name and then you grow them and continue to develop them in the family way. That's how we do this practice. Finally, I'll close with these two invitations. The first is for those of you who've not yet been baptized. I wanna say another remarkable thought from the Anabaptists. And the thing about Anabaptists is that It's a diverse and free kind of different expressions. We as a church say we're Anabaptish because we like a lot of that historic movement and we feel like for our cultural moment, it's important to give generously, to to serve and love radically, to be a Jesus-centered, Bible-reading, following church. So we're Anabaptish. But one of the things that was remarkably consistent throughout the early movement is that they said God must be more loving than we are. And if an infant were to be deceased without ever getting baptized or uttering a word, surely God's mercy and love is big enough. Because that was the other contention, that the reason why you wanted to baptize babies was to wash off original sin. But again, that's giving water too much credit to work that only God can do. So the Anabaptists say, we entrust our little ones to the care of a merciful father. There's no way that so many of them you know, can say the exact right thing, but we're trusting them to God and to the Holy Spirit Because God has said yes to them in Christ. That we trust that there's something rattling around in their heart that eventually they'll say yes back. A couple weeks ago, literally two Saturdays ago, we had this kind of conversation with Emma. And we have talked at length about how do you become a Christian. Parents, can I offer you this? Because I'm a pastor and pray for my kids because they're pastor's kids and I take them to school every morning, almost many times a week for a year, I've said, how do you become a Christian? Because they kept saying, they would see the Kempers or Will get baptized and they would say, I wanna get baptized. I say, awesome, baptism's fun, but you can't have a birthday party before you're born. I said, how do you become a Christian? What's the starting point? And then, they would hem and haw and stumble. And finally, I told them, I said, let me tell you, you believe that Jesus is Lord and you give your life to follow him. That's what we see here. Jesus says, come follow me. Peter will preach in Acts and they say, what do we do? He says, turn to Jesus, be baptized. So I, we've talked about this. We talked about it so long. They've learned the stories of Jesus. They talk about how to love God. We are making future disciples. We're discipling future disciples. 
But at some point, we trust that the Holy Spirit is going to tug at their heart where it's just going to be different. They're going to ask in such a way, they're going to say in such a way that feels different. Would you pray for that moment now that you would have ears to hear? Amy and I were engaging in it like we were just kind of looking over the edge. We're like, is this really happening? Is this happening? Like we're saying this and I'm saying, God, is this really happening? Because we, we get so worked up, we don't want to muck it up. But we entrust them to God and the Holy Spirit's care. So just prepare for that birthday party, but understand that you got to get born first, that what we need to be more excited about is people saying yes to set off to follow Jesus. That's number one. Number two is when we celebrate as a family. But we got to celebrate those who are born first. So we always teaching my kids, hey, say Jesus is Lord and give your life to follow him. He said yes to you. He loves you immeasurably more than you could ever imagine. He's waiting for you to say, I love you back. And you give your life to follow him. And two weeks back, by God's grace, that's the conversation we had. And I said, Emma, you know the answer. We've talked about it in the car, but if you were to talk to Jesus, if Jesus was sitting on this bed right now, what are the words that you would tell him? And those words felt different. So we celebrate that. And someday soon, Lord willing, we'll celebrate the birthday party. So if you haven't been baptized and you've said yes to Jesus, I want to encourage you to talk with our with myself, Jason, Toby, our pastors, because we want to celebrate. We want you to, to know that you know that you know that we can celebrate together. And this is why, because my second invitation, we want you to remember your baptism as a turning point in your life. The way I say it is this, drive a stake into the ground and remember your baptism. There's a person in this room, we had this very conversation, Jason and I, we sat down, that prayer felt different, that invitation felt different, and we said, drive a stake straight through this table and into the ground, and this house may be done and gone in 500 years, but that stake, that imaginary stake in the ground is still standing, that's the moment you were born. And that you can go and be all kinds of prodigal, but you can remember that moment when I cross from death to life. You're going to get it wrong. I get it wrong. We get it. We are walking testimonies of how we get it wrong. But we're also people who said yes. And by God's grace, we want to keep saying yes. So if you've been baptized, and if you're like me, it was 26 years ago. I was, by the way, re-baptized as a young person because I could not resist this way of saying, I want to follow you. I don't care what my paper says, even though that's a good and beautiful thing. Remember that baptism. Remember that you are his, a beloved child and part of the family. That's why we celebrate the birthday party. Let's pray and then let's have a family meal. Father, we are grateful for these moments to come together to open your word and talk about your church and more than anything to sing about, hear about the ways in which you are calling dead people to new life. May we live accordingly, remembering who we are 
into what you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen. May we open our whole being to Christ's invitation to walk away from death and into fullness of life, not just through the waters of baptism, but within the everyday moments of our week. May the Spirit of God enable us to recognize the people and places to whom we are being sent as ambassadors of new creation. May God the Father open us to fresh expressions of community and mission as we are formed more fully into a faithful expression of the body of Christ, as those who are awake to God's resurrection power and aligned with God's kingdom purpose. Go in peace.